0: Production of AutoLine this week is underwritten
1: by Let's talk truth. When buying a car, we all want a great deal. Yet it's possible you could pay thousands more for the same car as your neighbor. That's why TrueCar provides upfront pricing information and a network of TrueCar certified dealers that guarantee savings without negotiation. Now, if someone paid too much for their car, well, it won't be you. So, when buying a car, get guaranteed savings. Visit TrueCar.com. And now, here is your
0: host, John McElroy. Thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week. We're going to be delving into all kinds of advanced technology on automobiles. and That's because my special guest today is Steve Zimmer, the Executive Director for the U.S. Council for Automotive Research. Steve, great having you on AutoLine.
2: It's great to be here, John. Thanks for having me, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
0: And that's because joining us today also are Gary Vasilash, the Editor-in-Chief of Automotive Design and Production, and Drew Winder, the Editor-in-Chief of Ward's Auto, and great having the both of you back John. as well. Mm-hmm. Steve, for those who don't know, and I'm sure a lot do not know, what is U.S. Car, the Council for Automotive Research?
2: Well, U.S. Car is a, it's a company. It's uh, owned by three other companies, that, and it's located in uh, Southfield, Michigan. It's owned by three other companies. that are also located in Michigan. You're, you're probably familiar with GM, Ford, and Chrysler, and it's been in existence for 20 years. What U.S. Car does is they do we do collaborative work, pre-competitive R and D in a lot of different fields uh, for those three com- with those three companies.
0: So my understanding is, prior to U.S. Car forming, it was illegal for car companies to get together and do any sort of collaborative research.
2: It was illegal for any competitors to do that. And uh, in the late 80s, uh, the uh, U.S. government made it legal to do pre-competitive collaborative type of work with competitors. And it took a while for the car companies to figure out, well, maybe that's something we should try to do. Because, I mean, up to that point in time, there's a lot of antitrust type of actions against the automobile industry. They didn't want any type of collaboration. And people just didn't talk. So... When we got this started, which would have been right around 1990 is when it, it all started, towards the end of the 80s and the 90s, um, it took a little bit of time. It was not a comfort space for companies to collaborate.
3: So did they like to talk to one another now, or, or did they sort of hold things back and say this is this is something that, we don't want to yes, tell the other questions. two guys about.
2: <laughs> yes, they do. No, they do. It's, uh, it's always interesting to try to find out that area where you, know, you have space to collaborate. And, and the, I'll just tell you that we at U.S. Car create a, a kind of a framework for the three companies to come together to do collaborative R&D. And so all of the teams, and we probably have 50 teams there, consist of the top engineers and scientists from each one of the three companies in a very specific area. And what they do is they come together and, and decide is it, we, what do we have and what area do we have a common interest in. And once they define a common interest, then they can start to define whether or not they have, can define a common activity to do together. Now, it's easy for three car companies to find common interests. It's not so easy. Define common activities. So
3: so what is pre-competitive? Could you define that? I mean, how, how does that sort out?
2: It's, it sorts out differently in every area that when we engage in, when a team comes together, uh, there's probably a lot more that's defined as, a uh, lot less that could be pre-competitive than uh, competitive. Almost everything they do, they feel is competitive. But as they, as they get through it, and like, one of the areas where uh, we do a lot of work is in in benchmarking, so we have a advanced uh, powertrain group that has a lot of groups under it. One of them is a we have an engine benchmarking group we have a transmission benchmarking group, and they do a lot of competitive analysis of powertrains together and But before they could agree to do it together, they had to kind of do a data exchange amongst themselves, well, you know, we're going to benchmark each other's, so we might as well figure out a more efficient way of getting that information. When they first started to do that, they looked at how they did it, they all did it differently. So therefore, even if they could give them the data, it wasn't very useful because you couldn't basically bring it into your system. So first you got to sit down and decide you want to do something, and you got to find a, either a common protocol or a methodology under which to do it so that everybody get something out of it and then you go off and you do the activities and then as you continue to do it um, you get better and better at it and it becomes much more efficient so t- today we do a lot of different benchmarking activities.
1: Is this how automakers in Germany and Japan collaborate? Do they collaborate like this as well?
2: Oh yes yeah they've been doing this you know for a long time. Uh, the uh, you know Japanese certainly have you know and those types of organizations. And in um, Europe, the European automotive manufacturers have a, uh, an organization called EUCAR, E-U-C-A-R, came after U.S.CAR, but it's a very similar name. But it, it consists of a lot more car companies. And so what would be different between what they do and what we do is that we have, because we have three companies, we can do almost everything we do, we do as three. Uh, in some of those other larger organizations, they're selective. You know, they'll two or three of them will do one thing, and then two or three of them will do another thing. But the answer is yes to your question. They have been doing this for a long time, both in Europe and Japan.
1: So, after 20 years of existence, what can you talk about? What some showcase, you know, showcase accomplishments that that you've done? I mean, you know, you're involved in all sorts of stuff. Yeah,
2: probably one of the have? most notable things. One of the Uh, A wholly-owned consortia, or LLC, within U.S. Card is an organization called USABC, United States Advanced Battery Consortium. And this group, in conjunction with a lot of the national labs out of the Department of Energy and uh, some groups in the DOD and some other types of activities, but primarily the DOE, have been working in advanced batteries. And, matter of fact, they started early on with uh, nickel metal hydride and then moved into lithium ion. And now they're moving more advanced in the lithium air and different types of those types of batteries, all the way from the, 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 the basic science, the chemistry, the cell, the pack, the manufacturing. So all that technology. And I would say that almost every nickel metal hydride or lithium ion battery that exists today the technology basis for those batteries is through the work that was done through USABC and the uh, Department of Energy. So who owns the intellectual property to that? It depends. When we do these projects, um, we will, um, we do these are leveraged projects, funding coming from the companies as well as the uh, U.S. government. And we'll select suppliers that will actually do the work. And we, and the, the national labs will tend to do the f- further out stuff, the basic science stuff, the, the uh, applied or the uh, actual packed and cell configuration stuff, those projects we do with battery suppliers, you know, such as JCI or somebody like yeah. that. So the intellectual property in those uh, that are generated out of those projects does belong to the supplier But uh, there are agreements that certain uh, other—the government obviously has access to that intellectual property, and we have some rights into it also.
0: Steve, of course, this was all uh, made—formed. U.S. CAR was formed to make American car companies and their suppliers more competitive. You talked about all this advanced battery stuff. We're importing all those advanced cells from Korea, by and large. How do you address getting the stuff actually made in the U.S.?
2: It's been very, very difficult, and it's— we continue to work on those those challenges, but but I, I'll say one other thing is that the uh, the the automobile industry is a global business. I mean, if you're going to you know, other than a few startup companies that you know are starting to emerge in some of these areas, most of them are large global companies. And when you're in a global market, you produce and distribute vehicles every place in the world. So it's you know it's it's very difficult to basically. Say that uh, you know one. The technology would just be used in one particular location. When we do, when we are involved in specific projects with the Department of Energy in in these areas with our suppliers, the basically the ground rules of what comes out of that is that it will be first applied in uh, uh, U.S. location in U.S. products. But it'll eventually spread because the companies will spread it. It's a global market. It's, you know. It- if we, if
3: we think back 20 years and we think to today and the challenges that are facing the automakers, it seems that the challenges today are perhaps more severe than they were back then in terms of uh, addressing CAFE regulations. Right. So you guys are working on materials, and you're working on powertrain, you're working on environmental issues. Um, is Is this a more efficient way for the big three to do research in these areas by having something like your organization?
2: It, it, it certainly doesn't replace what the companies do back at their homes. And they have very impressive, you know, R&D organizations in each one of them. And, you know, and those R&D activities are located, you know, primarily in Michigan, but throughout the world. And uh, we augment that. There's, there's a, a lot of things that, you know, we we'll sit there and you look at uh, like uh, um, uh, lubricants, for engines, you know, I mean, we don't make lubricants, but you lubricants can improve the overall efficiency of how an engine operates. So we have a group that actually works on trying to de- define and help work with that industry to develop the characteristics of the lubricant that will help us, you know, do that. After treatment is an, is another area where we, you know, work to develop. Uh, Uh, technology that enables all of us in that space. Because some of those things are very important in the car, but they're not really visible or to the customer. They're not a reason for buying or not buying, but you know they're necessary to meet the regulations out there. So those are excellent areas to work together in. Another area is in developing standards. and We'll find that um, um, from a quality standpoint from a supply chain standpoint, sometimes it's, it makes a lot of sense for us to kind of take the lead to developing some common type of parts or specifications, such as connectors. Connectors are very, you know, the, the electrical distribution system in a car is extremely complex. Connectors are a critical link in that whole process. And so each they,
3: company would have its
2: own... Bank each for company, what a, what a every connector? supplier used to, you know, sell this stuff, by thing. So we the same tried
1: nuts and bolts and the, the same, same
2: nuts are, yeah. and bolts and everything like that. So we try to figure out, well, how can we make this so the whole supply chain is smarter and more efficient?
1: I've got to think, though, that there's people sitting at home right now saying, you know, this isn't right. You know, competition is the way you get more innovation and, and, and each automaker should be competing. And that's how you're going to get the best. You know, that's how you're going to get the most innovative right. stuff. How, how do you respond to those type of well, decisions? Well,
2: having been involved in both the competitive side of the business and the collaborative side of the business, I would, and, and I, I'd venture to say this about any industry, any company, if it's going to be world-class competitive, it better be world-class collaborative. or it, Because you, there's no company in, in any field, particularly in the automobile field, with, with all that's coming at it, that has the resources, the time, the expertise to do it all themselves. So you've got you to figure out where you do it, where you have exclusivity, and you're gonna, you know, it's very important to your brand, and where you do it in such a way that it just makes the whole industry more efficient. At the end of the day, both of them are the right solution for the customer, because they're creating value. One of the biggest challenges the industry
0: faces globally right now is coming up with better fuel economy. A key okay. to doing that is lightweighting. One of my hot buttons right now is carbon fiber. Do you see that as a really promising
2: short-term technology, or what other work are you doing in terms of lightweighting? Well, lightweighting is one of, again one of the very early efforts that we got started in at U.S. Car. Matter of fact, one of our first consortiums was, besides the Advanced Battery Consortium was the Advanced Composites Consortium. And uh, so just your comment on lightweighting the vehicle, first of all, it's a, it's, it can be a very cost-effective way of increasing the efficiency of a vehicle. And the nice thing about it is that it's applicable to every single vehicle in every sector that's in the marketplace. So, but the difficult thing is trying to figure out how to change this high-volume, multi million multi-million unit supply chain manufacturing steel system into a multi-material type of system. So in in that context, we believe there's a lot of materials that are coming into play increasingly to reduce the weight of the vehicle, including aluminum, including ultra-high strength steels, magnesium, and composites. And, And we do see opportunities for composites. They're extremely strong, they're extremely light, you can configure them in such a way that you can eliminate a lot of parts, but they're very costly. And so, some of the main work that's being done in uh, carbon fibers is to creating low cost, automotive grade carbon fibers. And uh, when you get to that point, it's just like with batteries cost, cost, cost are the big challenges, particularly if you want these technologies to scale. So, this is research that
3: continues on. You said this is one of the earliest consortia. It that
2: continues have. on, yeah. And we're, we, um, matter of fact, uh, give some kudos for, to some of the national labs. at Oak Ridge National Lab, they just, over the last uh, year and a half, have put together a kind of a pilot plan for uh, carbon fiber, for creating carbon fibers. And we've been involved in this effort for a long time. And it's, it's really a very, very interesting project. And, and it's, it's almost a full-scale uh, carbon fiber plants. So, I mean, I think we're gonna get real good results out of that, but uh, it's, it's still a, a challenge. I mean, we've uh,
1: uh,
2: continued to work on it.
1: Well, and the major, the, the the big stakeholders in automotive materials are steel and aluminum and whatnot. Now, are you able then to sort of uh, look at some of the little guys who don't have quite the, don't uh, have uh, some of the resources and, and, and everything else that, that the you know, say, the steel and aluminum companies have to see if there might be, more alternatives to some of the major materials. I mean, I, I think you've done some work with magnesium and some right. other things. Are you able to champion, I guess, some of these lesser lesser known materials to see what kind of potential they have?
2: Well, we've we've had a major effort in magnesium. Let me just comment a little bit about these the aluminum and the steel wars or whatever is going on out there. I mean, we work with both of those industries, and they're, and they're great to work with. You know, it's kind of sometimes hard to work with them together. But we do a lot of work with uh, a large group of steel suppliers as well as in the aluminum industry. But in the magnesium area, you don't have the big players. You don't have a big industry here. So you're dealing with you know, sp- smaller companies, if not universities, that are actually doing the work in this space. And we've been... Uh, we've actually written a uh, roadmap to 2020. We wrote it a few years ago in the magnesium spaces. How do you, what do you really need to know and solve and understand about magnesium in order to incorporate it and integrate it into different automotive systems into the car? And so we've got a large project that we've been working on magnesium for a long time. And we've just recently completed, we've gotten actually a, a major award with uh, the department of energy in in the magnesium space and we are uh, tr- we it's a several year project to try to develop uh, the whole you know front end of a car and dramatically reduce the waste by the weight by using a lot of magnesium and we've gone through a lot of simulations we're into developing the parts and the the uh, uh, understanding you know how they'd be using the car and we believe that we've shown that a magnesium-intensive front end could reduce the weight of a a unibody construction by um, 45% to 50% and a uh, frame vehicle by 25% while reducing the complexity in the part count by up to 60%.
0: That's extraordinary.
2: So so is this... this just simulated work, or will you
3: create a front end and say to the industry, okay, this is what you guys need to well, do? Well,
2: just a, a, a past success. One of the, the early things parts that we were looking at to do, we're, we did an engine uh, cradle, and actually went on the 2006, the Corvette. And that was done with uh, the teams uh, you know, at U.S. Car. But the, as far as the front end, First it's simulation, then they develop some, you know, samples and, and some test protocols and stuff like that. Now they're configuring some some shapes and stuff like that to, to test load paths and stuff like that. And they're also starting to create, uh, you know, a, a, not a large volume of parts, but a couple hundred parts to basically understand what the variation is in the manufacturing process to get all that knowledge together so you can actually go out and feel confident that you can design in that material.
3: So this isn't just theoretical, this is applied? This it, is, it's you, you applied, wanna...
2: but it, it continues to have a theoretical element of it because at the end of the day, um, all vehicles are, you know, a lot of them are developed in, in the CAD space and even the manufacturing process is. And therefore, I mean, when you, when you bring this stuff together, you know, unless you're gonna have a lot of time you know, to develop it through you know iterations at the end of the thing, you 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 want that knowledge base in the CAD system to really understand what the material properties and characteristics are in that application. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what year are you working in now, what what does the what does the future <laughs> car look like?
2: Uh it's uh, it's pretty you know it's it's complex. Here's here's our what we work. We have a very broad portfolio of technologies, and so. We we would love to have a crystal ball. We'd love to be able to pick one. I'm sure anybody else would. The the answer, you can't. And even if you could, you'd be wrong. We know that. Because ultimately, but so we're working on all this stuff, and then the company's job, and this is where the competitive space is, is to pick this stuff and try to figure out how and when to incorporate it into, into, into vehicles. And at the end of the day, when it starts to scale. I mean, that's when the, the, the final vote will be the consumer. You know, he's, they're gonna pick the winners, no one else is. And uh, as far as looking at the future and the, you know, the cafe environment that we in, we're in, I think a lot of the lightweight stuff will move into the uh, vehicles. In the advanced combustion area where we're working, I mean, clearly we're seeing it today, downsizing and boosting of engines. I mean, <clears throat> the internal combustion engine you know, it's the king of the road out there. Everybody said, well, you know, the thing's got to go, got to go. It doesn't, it, that is not going to go away easily. I mean, it is incredible how, what the engineers can do to make that cleaner, more efficient, lighter, and, you know, a better product for the consumer. And then as you move into hybrids and stuff like that, like extended, extended range hybrids or plug-ins, I mean, the internal combustion engine, you know, becomes a, a generator, a source of, Power to eliminate range anxiety. Hopefully that the battery cost will at least drop in half and the density, the energy density will, will improve significantly. Fast charging will become a reality and uh, an infrastructure will emerge. And those things all have to exist for this stuff to come to fruition. And we haven't even talked about hydrogen cars yet.
0: We haven't. But let's talk about advanced <laughs> manufacturing because that's another area that you guys get into. Exactly.
2: What, what do you think are some of the most promising technologies
0: or the most promising that's going to start showing up in factories?
2: Hmm. Well, we think um, a couple things. One is um, we think wireless uh, you know, systems communication in the factory environment is extremely important because it gets a lot of the cabling and a lot of the infrastructure out of the way, and so you can really become much more efficient in how you use space. The other thing is is the continuation of uh, robots, but it's not robots just in isolation. I mean, today, you have robots in there, and they're kind of caged in. They do a welding function. Because they're dangerous, like that, otherwise. Because they're dangerous. Well, they'd be dangerous if you didn't make them safe.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. But but in the future we see that you know robots and humans are working shoulder to shoulder and they basically you got to, those the robots have to be intelligent enough to know there's a human next to it so <clears throat> <Vice> some, versa. <laughs> huh? and, and the person would probably like to do that the, the other tools that we develop in advanced manufacturing is we simulate the manufacturing plants before we build it and the human is a very, very important element in the manufacturing process. So we've spent a lot of time, years, developing and continue to develop a, uh, a, a digital human that is very representative in the digital world as we design our factories. And that's a, that's ongoing work, it, and we get smarter and smarter. Of this doing is that.
0: so you can simulate somebody actually working on the line to see if there's any safety or health safety, or efficiency issues.
2: Efficiency, fatigue issues, uh, injury. Uh, so, so does that model then get
3: used by the car companies?
2: Well, then we that that's an interesting next step. That because car companies don't per se buy those models, they buy those models from suppliers who provide those tools and those models. So the next step, and this is where I said, you know, we combine some interesting groups of uh, suppliers or other industry players, Well, so we, we bring them in to work with us up front to refresh their models to have the latest wrist or, or neck. And uh, one other area that we
0: didn't get into is vehicle safety, and, and we're getting down to the last couple of minutes. Well, what are you doing in that
2: regard? Well, safety is one of the keys to all of this new technology, and uh, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of factors that we work on. So we've had a safety group at U.S. Car for a long time. Uh, one of the big things they do <clears throat> is they uh, they work to develop. Uh, crash dummies for the industry, and they work with other industry players. I'm not saying we do this alone, but we will take the lead to develop like a world SID dummy, you know, a fifth percentile uh, male or female or kid dummy because you have to use these things not only in developing the vehicles, but certifying the vehicles for safety standards and the regulatory agencies use these dummies also to... Uh, develop their regulations. So we continually uh, try to work on that and develop d- the dummies. The key thing about a dummy is that it, 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 it does two things. One,
1: got it got does quit, what you want it to do,
2: and it does it consistently every time. And we
0: should uh, point out for anybody who doesn't know in the audience, these dummies can cost half a million dollars a piece, and automakers have to have dozens of them for all their different crash That's tests. Right. So a lot of science goes into them. Steve Zimmer, thank you for coming on. Very interesting seeing where this auto industry is going. And Gary Vasilash and Drew Winter, thank you guys for helping me pry some of this out of him. And I want to thank all of you for having tuned in to AutoLine This Week. Production of AutoLine This Week is underwritten by.
1: Let's talk truth. When buying a car, we all want a great deal. Yet it's possible you could pay thousands more for the same car as your neighbor. That's why TrueCar provides upfront pricing information and a network of TrueCar certified dealers that guarantee savings without negotiation. Now, if someone paid too much for their car, well, it won't be you. So, when buying a car, get guaranteed savings. Visit TrueCar.com.